0: Oh boy! I just got the Colin update that Richard promised would be in my app soon. It's so, better, isn't it? Uh, that's exciting. Yeah, yeah. So people with fat fingers—I don't know if I have especially fat fingers—but uh, even my fingers at times have mistakenly clicked or pressed the wrong button that brought me off the stage. So hopefully that is now resolved and. Kudos to the powers that be at Colin for, uh, I would think, being responsive to
1: user feedback. Mm-hmm. Hooray! That may be the only positive thing I say tonight. <laughs> how's the uh, how's the app doing? Is it uh, is this thing taking off? Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I get the impression that it's
0: had some growth, but it probably is a, still a bit of a niche app. Um, I'm not sure if I get the impression that there's a whole lot of just general public usage of the app. It's more for people who have a particularly, um, uh, you know, niche involvement in different sort of kind of online media commentary type circles, which, you know, it's a big enough user base. I would think for at least some profitability or whatever, but, uh, I don't know if it's really nah. broken through yet to the broad swath of the public that would use an app like this, I don't know, just for
1: sports or something. It has um they do have uh like I think like you know, don't they have like uh so you could like look at what's popular on Colin, right? And so they do have I think like Hollywood stuff, don't they? Uh they do have like uh I don't know. I only see political stuff actually, mostly. But maybe that's just because that's like you know that's my uh, algorithm. Uh, you know, I don't know if they're actually doing stuff besides that. Trending shows, uh, after all, with the Omar Gawish, Uh Yeah, I, yeah. All these people I see are basically polit- people I know politically. Uh, so I don't know if they're what they're going for, but okay. Yeah, we'll hopefully will. I don't know. You know, there might
0: be some market for that. I mean, there have been, uh, you know, immensely profitable talk radio shows for decades that cater exclusively to politically inclined audiences. I mean, I think, uh, you know, wasn't Rush Limbaugh the most yeah, he was highly he compensated was media figure uh, in the country for years or something? I mean, maybe second to Howard Stern. Yeah. But, you know, you get the idea.
1: Yeah. I mean, that he was, you know, the, the, the Limbaugh thing was very, you know, interesting. He was, he was, I mean, he was wealthy. He was huge in his day. Um, and but it's such, but it's such like a passive, uh, it was such a passive medium, like AM radio. Like, I don't know, you could be hungry. Because well, you could listen, listen in your home. car.
0: I mean, that's what, was, that was the beauty of it.
1: Yeah, so I—I I mean, it's like you know, I guess to be that big, you have to be like just you know, the audience. I think maybe has to be just so passive, like they can't, you know, they—they're like you know, they're just like this is like you know, six, somebody sixty years old is probably not going to come on this app, you know, maybe somebody sixty, you know, maybe some 80. I mean, there's really an age limit to. uh you know, there's really some kind of age restriction to the extent to which anyone would use this. Um, I think
0: George have, uh, H, G- George H. Bush, when he invited the uh, Rush Limbaugh to stay in the Lincoln bedroom in the White House, uh-huh. personally went out and greeted him and carried his bags to the Lincoln bedroom.
1: Well, George Bush was just a nice guy. <laughs>
0: I guess just to give you a certain flavor of uh, the influence he was perceived to have for uh, a while.
1: George Bush is a, was supposedly personally uh, very charming uh, People, people H.W. Like
0: Bush. I mean,
1: oh, H.W. Bush, not George. Yeah. W. Bush. No, oh, H.W. Bush invited him to the uh I didn't I didn't know that yeah. he was embraced by H.W. Bush. I thought it was a little yep. later when he became really embraced by No, early I
0: mean early 90s is when he really took off.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. I think yeah, yeah he has, know, and he was sort of like the chief media propagandist. And I say that really just in a descriptive oh, yeah. neutral way. No, he had for the, years. Uh, for the Gingrich, you know, revolution. Yeah, so if he had
1: 30 years as like the biggest conservative personality in the country, basically. Uh, maybe not 30, 20. Like, he was, because he was during the Tea Party, he was like personally fighting with Obama. And so that's uh, like yeah. 1990 to like 2010. And then, you know, maybe he dropped off a little bit before uh, before before the end but yeah he had a good twenty twenty five years uh as like yeah just like the face of conservatism in the country yeah so. you know, i actually wrote I, I don't know if you want to call it an obituary but
0: i wrote a thing when he uh, died in uh 2021 20, right um
1: it was after trump i know trump gave him like a medal of freedom so it was after yeah, yeah. i think it was uh, during trump's presidency did he die uh, i
0: think it was just after it was just after trump left office so it was uh like February yeah, 2021. Right. Yeah, a month. Wow, well, a month after. Um, and, well, one thing I wrote in that piece was that when I was growing up, <clears throat> pretty much everyone who I met, you know, just incidentally, not like I was seeking out conservative groups or whatever, but anyone just over the course of ordinary life who I would meet and incidentally find out was like a conscious, ideological self-identifying conservative pretty much all of them would tell me this is my recollection anyway recollection anyway this includes family members just random people at school you know whoever uh that they became conservatives at the first instance because of rush limbaugh
1: really i was uh uh really i was not um uh, that wasn't my experience. Um, I didn't like, I guess I didn't talk to people about politics growing up. Um, I only, you know, when I was interested in politics, I started to know people and politics and nobody I knew like listened to Rush Limbaugh because most people I knew were like, you know, not talk radio people. They were people who, you know, read stuff mostly. Um, so that's, that's, that's anecdotally, uh, very interesting. Uh, somebody in the, in the, in the, in the, chat says hw died in 2018 yeah we were talking about limbaugh we said limbaugh died in 2020 we were talking about <laughs> uh, uh, gee thanks H, uh whatever, whatever yeah. <laughs> thanks thanks for trying yeah uh so um yeah it's a it's a, it's a fascinating thing and um, so you know can we uh can call can we replicate that and call and you know there's a limited audience based on what he wasn't he, he was very talented like I could listen to Limbaugh and like laugh at be entertained you put Hannity or Mark Levin um, on and I, I just I just want to run away I mean it's just pedantic yeah. it's yelling it's angry it's not humorous it's not funny um, he was good he could troll and he could you know he was intelligent I you know I think he was just in a class I could listen you know else I can listen to I could listen to uh, he's not like funny but like he's like funny because he's like sort of crazy Michael Savage
0: well I was just gonna say Michael Savage is by far the he was, Michael Savage was funny,
3: yeah, yeah, he was, and he was around, actually.
0: He? Uh, you know, I think he only. I think he was finally forced off the radio. I think. I mean, I I checked it somewhat <laughs> recently, and he's only got some kind of half-hearted web presence now. Uh huh. But he was gradually taken off his uh, stations uh, in the past couple well, years. Well, what was
1: what was the reason? Was it, what was the reason for it? Was there some thing he got in trouble for?
0: It? Um, I don't think there was anything specifically that he got in trouble for. uh... You know, he had, like, a mixed view on COVID. Like, he was sort of chastising some conservatives at the, at the beginning for not appreciating the gravity of it. But he also had, like, an idiosyncratic take on vaccines because he was... He was, like, a He, natural, he was, like, a botanist. Yeah, thousands, yeah thousands, for, thousands, uh, yeah, in the... That's where he, and he has, a, you know, a PhD in, like, botany or something along those lines. Um but, yeah, Michael Savage was the only conservative talk radio personality who I could shoot, who I could listen to for extended periods of time and not be turned off by the tedium and unoriginality of it. What about, what about I could Alex listen, Jones? I Alex could listen Jones to, is to Yeah, I mean, Alex, Alex Jones is entertaining in a different way. Like, Michael Savage actually had an endearing sense of humor. And it was good because it was like a... Um, you know, he's like a Brooklyn Jew from uh you know from back in the day and he could sort of revive that humorous sort of aura. Um whereas, you know, Limbaugh, you know, I found him more tolerable marginally than like uh, Le- Levin or um a Hannity. I mean Hannity was the most intolerable, it was just yeah. nonstop, repetitious Republican talking points. Yeah.
1: Um
0: but you know, Levin could or uh, Savage rather could just meander endlessly into digressions and tell anecdotes and stories and sort of weave back and forth between politics and other stuff. Whereas, you know, like a Hannity or even really a Limbaugh, it would just be straight daily repetition of whatever the current, you know, basically Republican agenda was. Savage wasn't quite as uh, down the line as that. And uh, so, I mean, all I could say is he would I, I, be on at night. So there would be times where I'd be driving around at night listening to Michael Savage. Um, but yeah, I
1: saw this clip once of I don't know like how often he did this, but he uh, uh, Savage had this like stand-up comedy bit, and I remember just seeing the clip where he would like he he would come out like on a stage, and he would be like driving a car with like American flags, and then like there would be like a homeless bum. Like, you know, like somebody playing a homeless bum, like laying in front of the car and he has to like stop the car. And he's like, oh, these bums are everywhere. Like I am, uh, you know, I'm, I'm yeah, I, you know, I'm, I, you know, and so he gets out and just starts doing his routine. And then he just like looks at the bomb. He's like, "Oh, are you ready to move now? And like everyone's like, USA, USA. I got to, I got to find these clips. It's really funny.
0: It's really I don't crazy. know if I've ever seen, if I've ever seen that. I know he had an MSNBC show briefly during the um, onset of the Iraq war. Um, no, I and I no, think, I, he, and he said something about he had so, said something
1: unkind about gays, I think, and then that was over pretty quickly. That's funny. Uh, let me see if I can find Michael Savage uh, stand-up routine because this this is a uh, it was actually a pretty a <coughs> fascinating piece of uh, art. Let me see here. <laughs> yeah, anyways, yeah. yeah. That's, uh, are, are there any are there any liberals who are fun uh, uh, who are fun to listen to? I mean, there was there was no.
0: <laughs> On the as a talk radio host, no. I mean, not that I ever listened to. There was a brief moment where Air America Radio launched in direct response to, or as a reaction to, the dominance dominance of right wing radio. Um, but that sort of folded pretty quickly, and there just wasn't the same market for it because, you know, talk radio is more of a specialized thing for you know self conscious conservatives who will seek it out whereas i guess the idea was you already have liberal inflected media in lots of other places so there's not as much of a desire for people to seek it out on the radio or it's just like different consumption habits between the political demographics um so for whatever reason it didn't pick up uh, it didn't really you know you know take off um, but I never listened to any liberal talk radio. I mean, when I would listen to liberal or progressive content or consume it, it wouldn't be in that format. Hey,
1: Michael Savage is on Twitter. Did you know that he wouldn't? Doesn't seem like he'd be a Twitter guy to me. He's got Is It's just like an
0: automated feed or something, or is it actually him doing? No, it, it as looks. Well. It
1: looks like he's got a blue check and. Uh... He's, yeah. He looks like you know. It looks like him. He's he's he's, he's complaining about uh, gender inclusivity in the Air Force. He's, oh, okay, yeah, that's he's posting every few hours, so it's not like he's talking about Fauci. He's talking about California Attorney General. Uh, You know, he's he's like uh, he's on top of, and he's got like you know, several a day. So he's uh, he, you know he's talking about that big prosthetic boob uh, teacher from Canada. <laughs> You know the story? I missed that story. <laughs> oh, you don't know the story? Okay, well, yeah, I'll spare you. I've been you in a this. World War II
0: vortex for the past week, so I've missed a lot. <laughs> You've
1: missed. Oh, uh, man, you don't want to know this. I,
0: just, know. Finished, uh, I just finished my 9,000-word uh, essay, so i going to publish that soon if people weren't sure. Ah, fun. That's fun. Um. So, uh, is the were there any points that we didn't get to on the... Um, Nuclear situation, I <laughs> Yeah, I you well, saw I that talked, there was a to statement less. from Medvedev today that, um, you know, as we would have expected, they're saying that they will reserve the right to carry out nuclear reprisal in the event that these newly annexed territories are
1: yeah, attacked. I mean, that
0: was the that was the central reason why this is such a potentially. Escalatory uh, step, and that was you know, it. Was articulated explicitly by uh, Medvedev
2: today.
1: Yeah, he's um, he was uh, you know he was making explicit what Putin said uh, you know more implicitly uh, the other day. Um, you know, I was talking to somebody about uh, you know, so I was talking to somebody about the Putin speech, and he was t- so, he was telling me that the uh, Putin may, talked about defending with all means, like you know, as a response to supposed nuclear threats coming from the West. Uh, and then I look back at the speech, it's like it's like sort of that's one interpretation. Um but I, I think the interesting question is, um, what is you know, what like what where are nuclear weapons and like, you know, Putin's like menu of options, right? So they have this thing which is partial mobilization. Um, and they're you know, they're going with that. Like and so if this fails, if this doesn't work out well, if like the soldiers don't fight very well or whatever, they're not motivated or uh, Ukraine is, is the next step uh, more mobilization uh, because every step is going to uh, cause domestic problems at home, or is it you know, nuclear escalation? Is nuclear escalation like the end of this you know, this chain? And do we get and if it is, we still might get to the end of the chain, or is it like is it a substitute for potential uh, mobilization? You know, or do they give up at some point and say we're not going to go with any more of these options, we're going to somehow uh, sue for peace, right? Uh, I think that's sort of, you know, that's the question right now. Yeah. Um, you know, I think
0: one way to think about it, and I did, I did a tweet to this effect last night after we finished the call-in, but, <clears throat> you know, there were, there were prominent Americans um, like Curtis LeMay, who was the commander of the U.S. strategic, strategic bombing in the specific. Pacific, in the Pacific theater in World War II and then took on a variety of other roles. Um, Barry Goldwater, who was the Republican presidential nominee in 1964. Uh, Those two, you know, very prominent, you know, you could say powerful figures, threatened use of nuclear weapons in Vietnam in the 60s. And it yeah, but he was came treated out... like
1: a crazy person. He was treated like uh, Lemay was treated like a crazy person. Well, I mean, so was Goldwater to some extent,
0: or at least that was the tactic used against him by the Johnson campaign in '64. I don't know if you've ever seen that Daisy ad where there's yeah, but that wasn't, uh, about, that Vietnam. That wasn't about
1: Vietnam. That was about Well, yeah, well,
0: well, about... well, yes, it was. I mean, it Is was that... Pro- that was that was prompted by attacks on Goldwater that he was crazy because he was threatening
1: to use nuclear weapons. Was that about Vietnam or just about the Cold
0: War yeah. generally? Well, I mean, it was generalized into a broader nuclear threat, but it stemmed from a comment from Goldwater about using nuclear weapons in Vietnam. Uh,
1: really? Because that was pretty. I mean, that was pretty early in uh, Vietnam, the nineteen sixty four campaign. Uh, are you sure about that? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I just, I just, you know, looked it up again recently. Okay. Um, and uh, you know, so I was just going to say that. Oh, and then also it just came out relatively recently when archival documentation surfaced, hmm. I think 2018, uh, that William Westmoreland, who was you know, basically ah. the commander of the arm for, U.S. Well, armed Forces in, Viet- in Vietnam, he had drawn up secret plans to use nuclear weapons on the battlefield, like tactical nuclear weapons they're called, I guess. Uh, use them on the battlefield in case of like a catastrophic defeat of U.S. Forces in Vietnam, yeah, and that the plan was actually already set in motion until Lyndon Johnson. One of Lyndon Johnson's advisors caught wind of it, told Johnson, and then Johnson scuttled the the plan. So that's all just to say, if you have these relatively high profile, prominent individuals in the '60s, and I'm not saying this this was a consensus view, but it was a relatively well-supported view um, that tactical nuclear weapons ought to be used in Vietnam, then given how much closer Ukraine appears to be to the perceived national interest of Russia, Mm -hmm. not least just because of the geographic proximity, then Vietnam was to the perceived national interest of the U.S.? then I think that should at least give some insight into why it is that just flippantly dismissing Putin's threat to use nuclear weapons as a bluff that shouldn't be taken seriously and should just be set aside and the escalatory uh, spiral should be allowed to proceed as usual.
1: Yeah, so here's it's something interesting. Here's a September 22, 1964 article. Goldwater says he believes that the military field commanders already have the power without presidential order to use nuclear weapons. So he was trying right. to say the military, you know, basically I think I think that's, you know, could be interpreted as he wants that to be more of a, uh, you know, live possibility, although he just be brushed he explained it by saying he was just saying that's what the uh, that's what the president. Uh, that's the. Uh, that's what. That's the uh, power that the president gave to the commanders.
0: Well, the only real decisive action that Truman took in the dropping of the nuclear bombs in Hiroshima, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, was number one, he vetoed the option of bombing Kyoto. He ruled that out because of the historical or cultural significance of the city, and number two he intervened to say that the dropping of the bomb would uh, must have presidential authorization. Other than that, the process was already like already, already proceeding apace and was on track to be carried out without his approval.
1: Now say that again, I'm
0: sorry. The process of dropping the nuclear bombs in Japan in 1945, it was proceeding apace without Truman's approval, meaning without presidential authorization, until he intervened and said, this requires presidential approval. Uh, But it's not like he initiated or really had much of a role in the process which led to the dropping of those bombs. So for LeMay to say that the battlefield commanders already have authorization, it's not surprising given that when... Yeah, that the bombing gold plan, gold plan gold was gold. developed in 45 it wasn't a given that the president would even have to authorize
1: it yeah there's a book called the nuclear taboo which goes into you know these decisions uh each of them uh yeah and basically uh the author nina Tannerwald, she says it was a non-decision it wasn't really like you know it was just they were going to use it um in uh uh the, to end world war ii and it didn't really cause that much uh, consternation it she basically says there was a, you know, I, I wrote a paper on this about the Eisenhower in the 1950s, and the, there were some uh, skirmishes between China and Taiwan over the Taiwan Straits, and at the beginning of the 1950s, uh, Eisenhower would seriously consider using nuclear weapons against China, and then by the end of the... Um, uh, by a few years later, like 1958, the second Taiwan Strait crisis, um, just there was too much, you know, there was a public opinion, there was a backlash to it. So it's not easy to use. I mean, people say it like LeBay, Goldwater, but they were all treated like, you know, they were all treated like, you know, insane. Johnson, you know, never seriously considered it. Nixon, to my knowledge, never seriously considered it um, in uh, in Vietnam. Um, and then, it, you know, it hasn't been it hasn't been really considered since. So it's it is a big deal i mean it's not you know it's like it happened once at 45 and the fact that it never happened again indicates that countries take this very seriously despite all the wars right soviet union lost in afghanistan the us lost in afghanistan uh soviet union collapsed us uh, you know had all the problems in iraq us lost in vietnam i mean the fact that nobody uh, nobody ever used nuclear weapons you know is is, inter- is is interesting so there is something there but this is you know, but I don't I wouldn't say it's impossible because, you know, this is this is serious. I mean, this is the you know, this is not like the Soviet Union being in Afghanistan. Um, this is not like the U.S. being in Afghanistan. This is uh, this is fundamentally important to Russia. And they're in a bad battlefield situation. While the other wars, I mean, they always had options. Right. The Soviet Union, you know, actually pacified Afghanistan um, and then and then left. um, you know, the U.S. could have stayed in Afghanistan at, you know, limited costs, could have you know, maybe had to start taking casualties again, but it wouldn't like bankrupt us or really destroy our national security for, uh, you know, we could have it's like we had many other options. So this is sort of off the charts and its importance to Russia and sort of how bad the situation is, uh, you know, their goals uh, relative to um, their capabilities right now, um, their conventional capabilities. So, uh, yeah, that's what makes this a scary situation. Yeah, you know, the um one of the reasons I've been in this World War II
0: vortex is actually, you know, directly relevant to the current situation in that there is a clear parallel to be drawn, I would think, or at least there's lessons to be learned or insights to be gleaned in uh, what it means to be an actor in an escalatory spiral or an escalating intervention that proceeds incrementally. Because, you know, one thing that I guess I hadn't fully appreciated, I mean, I appreciated it to some degree, but hadn't done a systematic review of the full breadth of the literature to really validate this conclusively. Uh, but one thing that I've come away with, and, you know, this is going to be in the essay, obviously, which is almost done and I'm about to publish, but... <clears throat> You know, one thing that I guess I haven't fully appreciated to the extent that I should have is how much outright deception, multifaceted, explicit, unambiguous deception was employed on the part of you know, the Roosevelt administration in the run-up to war- to formal entry into the war. So when people think, oh, the U.S. entered the war on – December seventh, nineteen forty-one, after Pearl Harbor was attacked. I mean, yeah, that's the, of course the formal official entry, but you know, there were the the enactment of Lend-Lease was in May, March of nineteen forty-one after a rancorous debate, where opponents of Lend-Lease predicted that this would make inevitable the U.S. entry into the war, even though Lend-Lease was sold as a means by which The US could avoid the war. That's how Roosevelt presented it to the public. Um, And that was a lie, because simultaneously as Roosevelt was saying this, that lend lease was a means by which the US could avoid the war, uh, entering the war, they were drawing up plans to use lend lease as a vehicle to do such things as um, organize uh, naval convoys, which Roosevelt's Secretary of the Navy disclaimed would ever happen. Uh, because it would constitute an act of war. So while they were saying that this thing would never happen because it would be an act of war, they were drawing up plans to do what they were saying was an act of war, right? And so, of course, you know, this eventuates not just in the secret occupation of Iceland, but um, <clears throat> the commencement of direct warfare with Germany. Um, and you know all through 1941, Hitler was actually being appealed to by his chief naval commander for authorization to fire on American ships. And Hitler denied this every time um, because Hitler did not want to draw the U.S. into the war at that point. Um, and in part because he was concerned that the U.S. could overwhelm Germany uh, militarily, but also because of you know, strategic issues involving Japan. Um, but but there were Three incidents, you know, pursuant to the implementation of land lease, which, again, was supposed to be the ticket to avoid war, uh, that resulted in direct naval warfare um, from September through to October of 41, and 111 U.S. sailors were killed, you know, in the period where there was technically, you know, people think that there was no war that the U.S. was involved in, 111 soldier, uh, sailors killed, and on each instance, after each instance, Roosevelt blamed Germany for launching, you know, like a premeditated attack on US vessels, um, said that Na- uh, Germany was to blame for initiating those attacks, and uh, cited those incidents to escalate even further US involvement in the war, like issuing a shoot to kill order, uh, repealing the neutrality acts, and so on. Um, and. That was also, those were also lies i mean the u s initiated the u s initiated these attacks on each of those three occasions um, and so you know it's it 's worthwhile even if you think you know some of this history or you think that you're familiar with it to to look at it with fresh eyes. I would say not that i 'm some trailblazing historian or historiographer or whatever, um, but even just for me, it was useful to kind of lay everything out chronologically and just appreciate just the audacity of the official deception which directly preceded formal U.S. entry into the war because you know there was a New York Times uh, the, the, the Washington bureau chief of the New York Times gave a speech in November of 1941 and basically declared that the government had officially had, had deceived the public as to these three Incidents of, of warfare in which 111 sailors were killed, and he lamented that unfortunately, because this guy wasn't anti Roosevelt, he wasn't even anti the uh, war necessarily. He was just trying to be truthful um, as best he could, and he had to lament that uh, Hitler had the facts on his side as per as to these three instances incidents, right? So that when Hitler does eventually declare war on the U.S. F- formally. He cites those three naval events as his justification for declaring war on the U.S. Um, So, you know, when people talk about U.S. entry to the war as just limited to December 7th, it really is misleading and it sheds light on why we should be attuned now. I'm not saying it's going to lead to the same kind of global catastrophe right now, right? But even if it's just half or a third or a tenth as perilous of a situation today, it's worth being attuned to these incremental escalations and what commitments are implicit in these escalations and what trajectory uh, they're heading in. And, you know, uh, I don't, it doesn't seem like enough people are really uh, interested in, in analyzing these events, uh, you know, from that standpoint. Yeah,
1: this is, this is worth. This is worth doing. I mean, it's, you're not bringing up like you know, like, yeah, like pathbreaking history. I mean, this is this stuff is pretty mainstream, um, you know. And the you know, and so did you uh, did you ever read the Pat Buchanan book on World War II? Churchill, Hitler, and then uh, I've
0: read portions of it, but I deliberately didn't cite it or reference it in this essay because I wanted to just double down on the insistence that every conceivable source that I'm using is like 100% mainstream because people could say, oh, look, he's just doing a, you know, Papu Buchanan 2.0 or something. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm obviously familiar with that
1: his yeah.
0: thesis, but I chose not to you know, directly yeah.
1: use it. Yeah, me. so, you, I mean, you can, you can cite any historian, pretty much any story you want. They're going to say the, the same thing on, I think, Roosevelt. And a desire to get into war. And I think it's good sort of piercing this uh, this narrative, right? It's like, anytime you don't want to go, I mean, World War II, it's a basic extent to which World War II, I mean, it obviously it's an important event, but it's a basic extent to which, you know, like, they just keep bringing it up like it's the only right. thing. So and it's so you know, the only your, analogy they use today to basically enforce
0: foreign policy consensus. That's another reason why it's worth revisiting.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and definitely. I mean, the, the you know, and like, you know, they'll say, well, you want the u.s to be isolationist we saw how well that worked out you know in world war ii and obviously the u.s was not you know this neutral actor just minding its own business uh in the run-up to world war ii um you know it's it's sort of you know there's this recurring thing in foreign policy where like it's very easy for the establishment because like you know this roosevelt thing is is not much different from the ukraine thing in the sense that you know there's a lot going on and people aren't really paying attention to what happens and then people get emotional uh, when it comes to when they see some kind of reaction, right? And so they think that World War II started on December seventh, uh, nineteen forty-one. Uh, people think you know yeah. the like, situation between Ukraine and Russia uh, started on February twenty-fourth, you know, twenty twenty-two. And you know those who are paying attention a little longer. They just get swept up, you know. The way public opinion, people just crazy and They don't care. They don't want They don't want to hear it at that it. point. So it's really. I mean, it is. Uh, you know the Holocaust thing. So this is this going to talk about the
0: Holocaust, today, or is this just going to talk about the? Uh, yeah, the you know, it's it's three big sections. One of which is the Holocaust stuff. We're going to break Which it up, again, which I it's it's very carefully worded to again simply establish that. Okay, I mean, I have to almost double check myself and make sure that I'm articulating this with exactitude and clarity because I know how people will try to, you know, read into it or you know, denounce it. But what I'm simply asserting is that there is a robust body of mainstream, peer-reviewed, utterly, you know, uh, normal uh, literature and scholarly opinion that supports the following contention, okay? That... U.S. entry into World War II up to and including the formal entry on December 7th. So not limited to the formal entry, but up to and including it. So starting in roughly March of 1941 may well have been an accelerant in the most lethal phase of the Holocaust, okay? So in March of 1941, Hitler says, uh, you know, is quoted uh, directly as his reaction to the passage of Lendley's is that it confirmed his belief that U.S. entry into the war was inevitable. So he basically assumed from then on, or you know, approximately around that time, according to, you know this historian um, Saul Friedlander, who is extremely eminent and, and well regarded, um, that after 19, uh, March of nineteen forty-one, it was a given that the U.S. that, uh, that the U.S. was entering the war. Right? Roosevelt was committed to the war, one way or another. <clears throat> um, and so, you know, you can track different events between March and December where Hitler appears to be reacting to different U.S. policy action. And that then coincides with an acceleration of various measures related to Nazi policy toward the Jews. Now, there was the chief causal factor, right? Obviously, this took place within a context of institutionalized anti-Semitism, Hitler's own deranged beliefs toward the Jews, et cetera. But among the factors at play was U.S. policy, as you would expect, right? How could it not be influential as to what the, you know, uh, leading power in the world was doing, uh, other than the ones that were already engaged in the war? Um, So, uh, you know, there's this historian, uh, Christian uh, Gerlach, who wrote a groundbreaking paper at the time in 1998. You know, I think it's interesting. One reason why I think people got so crazed about this when I mentioned it, you know, in truncated form a couple days ago is because I get the impression that a lot of... that there's sort of a slightly different... I mean, people can correct me if I'm wrong. I admit I'm not invested in this every single day of my life. But my impression is that there's a, been a sort of a different... Um, Uh, tilt to some of the more recent literature that gives additional premium to this foreign policy factor. Um, So Gerlach in 1998 comes up uh, with a contemporaneous statement um, from uh, Himmler uh, in late December of uh, 1941. Himmler records that Hitler's made, essentially made the decision that the European Jews were to be uh, exterminated as partisans. Um, Now, of course, Jews had been killed en masse prior to December of 1941. No one doubts that. But what Gerlach says is that um, upon Hitler declaring war on the U.S., and remember, Hitler already thought the U.S. was at war, but on the official... uh, German Declaration of War, and then the Reciprocal Declaration formally by the U.S., Hitler believed that this prophecy, which he had first proclaimed in full in 1939, had been fulfilled, that a world war had come uh, officially, and Hitler's prophecy was that the next world war would result in the annihilation of the European Jews. And that prophecy came to be in this telling when... The US entered the war, um, at which point the decision on principle was made that the final fate of the European Jews would be uh, extermination. Um, A directive was issued, according to Derlach, at that point. And then at the uh, Wanasi conference in January, um, that's when this order was sort of. Implemented and systematized into like a partially centralized plan uh, that and then which took shape, shape uh, in terms of the death camps that we now associate, you know, with the most lethal phase of the Holocaust, which was 1942 um, after U.S. entry to the war. Um, so that's what I'm contending is. A wholly defensible rendering. Of this chronology. And um, in fact, many you know, eminently mainstream scholars, including Adam Tooze, who whose book I just happened to be reading anyway, um, he actually assigns more causality than I would. I mean, he actually said Len Lease had a, um, directly impelled the radicalization of the Nazi Germany's, Germany's uh, racial policy uh, toward the Jews. So, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's the contention that I'm putting forth yeah. and, as defensible was- and, you know, in service of undermining this sort of like folkloric assumption that U.S. entry into World War II was this unmitigated good. And can be, it can be invoked as this trite analogy today because of the Holocaust, right? So, I, to me, that should be sufficient to at least call into ex- extreme question that sort of simple-minded um, analogization.
4: Mm.
1: Okay. Um, okay. Well, I look forward to reading the essay. It's coming when?
0: <laughs> um, I might even post it late tonight. I'm almost done. So i was just going to do like another edit. Uh,
1: okay, so, fine. Usually, I usually like to wait for mornings, but yeah, if you want to I'm out I mean, of night know. novels to enjoy it. I,
0: okay, my, cool. uh, my sleep pattern has been all screwed up anyway, so I'm sort of like midday right now okay you want to uh want to take some um,
1: calls these people are patiently waiting for yeah us. let's
0: go to some calls sorry to do my help my uh final solutions spiel again okay uh invite to speak andrew <laughs> andrew's been invited to the speaker uh, stage becoming, again you oh. gotta press next it's next yeah. call it's uh it's I, thought already, I thought he was yeah. already
1: the next caller he looked like the next caller to me but okay there have been no caller up yet
4: I can remove myself if you want. No, so no it's you just be a speaker. Easy. We can kick out later. <laughs> it's I mean, fine. Excellent. Yeah, I'll try to get myself kicked out. That works. Um, so starting this, I the World War II thing is really boring to me, Michael, because I agree with Richard that most of these people are idiots and they don't care about literature or anything. Um, I was talking to my dad earlier today just about all the Marvel movies that keep coming out and this like fourteen-year-old perpetual state of mentality that so much of the country seems to be in, and that's what you're dealing with is like Marvel brain for geopolitics and World War II history. Yeah, but, you know,
0: Andrew, for every Marvel brain out there, uh, or let's say for every 10 Marvel brains out there, there could be one non-Marvel brain who actually is amenable to reason. I actually am pretty confident that that's... I hope so. The the, the, the actual ratio is somewhere around there. Uh, And so I'm not going to preclude myself from doing stuff that I think is useful... Uh, just because of the 10 Marvel brains, especially if the one non-Marvel brain might gain something from it.
4: Yeah, that's fair enough. And to maybe speak on your defense, I think that even if people don't have a whole, you know, logically sound uh, chain in their head that, you know, you need to examine and destroy, there's probably people of prominence that have these emotions regardless. And they They feel this way, even if they don't think it. And they do have this kind of mentality. I do think that there are people in power or in media that really, uh, even if they haven't formally made these arguments, they kind of would be persuaded by them on an emotional level somewhat. So there is something to it. Uh, Just had two comments. The first thing is the upcoming referendum in the LPR, the districts, the Donetsk districts, LPR and DPR, uh, and all the other ones as well, they're going yeah. Be aren't the referendums tonight. being
0: held in all? Uh, I think it's yeah, five districts total, isn't it?
4: Kherson, Zaporizhia, uh, Donetsk, and, and Luhansk. And Luhansk and I thought I before. read
0: that it was also in
1: parts of Miko Alive, or did it, did I'm not sure wrong? about
4: that. Um, that would be odd to me, but maybe it's yeah. the case. Well, they don't control uh,
1: any of these, and well, they control uh, Luhansk in full and uh, Kherson mostly. Uh, but the other two, they don't control uh, in full. Uh, so, right. I don't, I, so I think they're gonna it's going they're gonna try to count the whole thing, which is you know strange. They really have to they have to go and they have to keep fighting for it. I mean, it, it's such a weird thing. Well, it's a, I,
4: it is weird, and it's gonna be obviously treated as a shame, yeah, and I just,
0: Hold I think, on, sorry. In the in the uh, in the Reuters uh, item, Richard, that you uh, sent me it says the referendums are due to take place in the Russian-held parts of Ukraine's. Donetsk, Luhansk, Kersen, Zaporizhia province, as well as part of Mykolaiv province. Oh, okay.
4: That's really? very surprising. I didn't know that.
0: That's what Reuters says. I mean, I don't know I don't, other than how, how what I'm reading be here.
4: established exactly? Because they barely control any of the province. So.
1: Yeah, Mykolaiv. What do they control? Mykolaiv is, um, do they think anything in Mykolaiv? I don't think they call no.
4: anything in Mykolaiv.
1: Not really. They're so going to gonna gonna have an internet referendum. And it just, <laughs> 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 that's all in <I'm> <laughs> the afraid. Mail-in votes. Uh-huh. That's weird. Uh, okay, I haven't seen. I haven't seen the Mikhail. I've read a lot of stories. Let did see. you read
0: the Reuters article you sent me? <laughs> well I thought I
1: did. Uh, let me see here. Uh, Mikolai, well, double let check. Let me check. I mean, don't take my word for it. It says it. Uh-huh. Uh Let's see, Mikhail. Yeah, Russia held parts. So they do hold parts of uh, Mikhail. Okay, it's incorpor- It's incorporated in. Uh... Okay, so they're incorporating Mikolaev into Khersons, according to this. So the, the that Russia has sense. up Mykolaiv, and they're saying Mykolaiv is part of Kherson, I guess. They're, yeah, they're
4: absorbing what they control and calling it Kherson, basically. They're not going to be able to hold a referendum with Mykolaiv. Uh-huh.
1: Okay. Uh, okay, so yeah, it's yeah. so they have these things. I mean, the people that I read who are smart, who've been really um, on the ball of, like, you know, what was happening with, you know, what was going to happen in the uh, conflict. I mean, they, they've they been saying Kherson is in trouble, like the, the supplying is difficult. You know, it's the, uh, the only thing that Russia really has on other side of the Dnieper. Uh, so it's, um, you know, it's it's something that something to watch, whether they hold on to that. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll see. It's now going to be a part of Russia, apparently. Uh they were they're supposed so these are these are coming up soon right they're supposed to be coming up within days I saw this one this will all saying,
4: be done within a week the vote and the tallying and the legal acceptance of the vote will be done within like a week or two probably
1: yeah, yeah. so on, on September twenty yeah it says well here's Wikipedia as an article on it they say they're going to uh, joining Russia between twenty third twenty third and 27th. so tomorrow I guess there will be there will be voting uh, maybe now because it's uh, it's you know they the that's tomorrow and uh, it's tomorrow in Eastern Ukraine. Uh, it must be early hour, early hours. So yeah, this is uh, this is gonna happen soon, and the war is gonna continue, and Ukraine is gonna have offensives, and um, you know, we'll see what happens. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a strange thing. It's like a thing where, you know, it's like you can't. It's like every fork in the road. Like every, it's like a fork of the road. Every path you go down seems really bad and has really bad options, and there's like no like face saving way for both side. You know, both sides to back down. There's only escalation. That's correct. And
0: didn't, didn't the Biden administration submit like a tentative proposal for additional appropriations that's going to come under consideration sometime soon? And we would expect that it would probably be following the same trajectory as the first one did, where Congress actually adds more money than Biden requests, which also happens incidentally with the just uh, standard yearly uh, Defense appropriations request. Um, So, you know, we're now going to have, you would think, at least some semblance, or maybe, I mean, maybe the debate will be totally vanquished again. I don't know. But you'd think there would be at least some thought given in Congress uh, sometime the next month or two, or whenever it is this comes up, about whether this next round of appropriations is hastening what seems to be. Uh, an acceleration toward the darkest possible outcome, or is there still going to be like this intentionally um, self-imposed, obstinate, uh, obliviousness to what the actual effects of U.S. policy are?
4: Well, at some point they're going to need to change policy because you can't sustainably, indefinitely, indefinitely arm all of Ukraine with what they need. They don't have enough. They don't have enough of certain ammunition already. They've stopped sending the U.S. I think it's 155 millimeter artillery rounds uh, some kind of artillery round that Ukraine is now saying they need more of it we're not the
1: US well, the US can't it. just keep producing stuff that's that would be surprising to me
4: at the levels they need though it, 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 they can produce a certain amount but is that enough if they use that amount in a day for the months Yeah the I mean
1: world? I was reading stuff I was reading some of these calculations that they
4: were going to run out you know
1: months ago and then you know Ukraine started to... I just I don't know I, I all I know is the it's US hard to is huge. <laughs> you know, yes, and they, they have the support also, all Western Europe too.
0: And also, both the U.S. and Western Europe have already sort of gradually uh, begun the process now six months ago, which is you know a good chunk of time, of um, you know marginally reor- reorienting their industrial capacity to be adequate for this task. You know that's why, lend-lease was enacted to not. To remove impediments for uh, the production of, for like of you know as full as possible scale uh, industrial capacity. You know, Macron, I think it was in May or something, uh, said that France was now a war a wartime economy. Uh, maybe that was a bit of a hyperbole, uh, but you know it. I think it is a reflection of like what the trends are. So I'm not convinced that somehow there's going to be inadequate yeah supply you know i think yeah um, i mean you
1: just look at know. the gdp you know gap between not just russia and the u.s but then you know all of western europe
4: and you know i don't know like i'm interested in why aren't we of... giving them as much as they request then if, if we have the ability to churn out all this ammunition and they keep begging for more and they're only using a certain amount a day when they're asking for more is it our lack of commitment i don't know that seems odd to me i haven't, I <clears> mean, <throat> I haven't you know i haven't seen um you know, I haven't seen the, you know, the, de- the
1: details on this. I don't know. Okay. Do this, you know, it's
0: it's, fun- it's funny because, uh, you know, in the first six months, uh, you know, given that I've been in this World War II vortex, I'm reminded that uh, in the first six months or so of a uh, land lease being enacted in uh, f- 1941, there were constant complaints, particularly from Britain, but also eventually the Soviet Union, that uh, land lease was woefully inadequate, right? Um so you know, I think you just expect complaints along these lines because they're trying to get as much as they can at every possible juncture, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they're uh, lacking for what they need to achieve. Yeah, there's uh, nothing. You know, nothing
1: there's nothing very hard about producing artillery, right? I mean, it's just a thing. If you want to spend enough money on it, you can. And you know, I mean, yeah. Russia. You figure Russia is also sp- uh, spending artillery, but they all but they have problems with the. Uh, You know they have uh, they have a much smaller economic base, Um, so yeah. I don't know. We'll we'll see. I just I just I'm just taking the without knowing the details. I'm just taking the relative size of the economy to understand what's going to happen here. Are you want to go to uh, you want Uh, to go to Pierre uh, Richard?
4: Can I just nah. really quickly make the one point I call okay, I, yeah. I just yeah, the referendum. I think it would be funny if we call the people that say the uh, elections or referendums are fake. Just call them election deniers. <laughs> because <laughs> Honestly, I'm not kidding. Like, it's funny, but that term is so misused. And it's one of those things that has like a moral weight to it without having any practical thought put into it. And you could just call them election deniers and it's going to be true.
5: So.
0: Yeah, you know every every Republican who has a bit of a wacky theory about the 2020 election, obviously there are many of them. I'm not denying that for a second. Is a uh, you know an un- incorrigible election denier. But the uh, supermajority of Democrats throughout the entirety of Trump's term, who thought that the election wasn't just quote interfered in, but that the voting machines were tampered with and Trump was fraudulently installed into office by Putin, they weren't election deniers. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, Michael, we, we we've talked about the, we've, we we'll get into this, but I I think there's a difference there, but that's for another day. Okay. Well, there's a difference, but you know, you get my point. Uh, okay. Uh, make next caller. Okay, Pierre. Unmute, hey. Pierre. Yeah. Yes. Okay,
6: hey. Okay. Yep. Hey. Um, the first thing I wanted to ask was, um, so. I think you mentioned, I wasn't going to bring this up, but you mentioned... Rent- could, you, uh, could, you,
0: could you speak a little closer to the phone or improve your uh, connection somewhat, somehow? If, like, maybe you're on speaker or something?
6: Okay. One, uh, uh, let's see. Can you hear me better at all?
0: Uh, I can, I can hear you. Go ahead.
6: It's all right. Okay. Um. I might have to switch to, I'm in my car on my Bluetooth, but if I switch to speaker, I don't know how
0: to do that. Uh, It's all right. Just go ahead.
6: Okay. Um, I wasn't going to originally bring this up, but um, you mentioned Lend-Leaf being uh, kind of done secretively. Did I get that characterization right? Or? No, it
0: wasn't done secretively. It does publicly. But the aims of it, meaning the aims of it as being intended to use as a vehicle by which the U.S. would enter... Into war in the European theater, those were concealed, and this isn't even a controversial view. I mean, one of the most mainstream biographers, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, said in 1985 that Roosevelt's policy was to wage war without declaring it, and his mechanism for doing that was lend-lease, and that was not that was concealed from the public in the. Uh, public presentation of what the purpose of Lend-Lease was supposed to be, because it was supposed to be keep the country out of the war, where in reality, it was being used to get the country into
5: the war.
6: Okay. Well, you, you know, I mean, he had that arsenal democracy, fireside chat kind of thing, and it was signed into law. So, I mean, you're out of war until you're, you're officially out of war until you're officially in war. So I don't know how much you can say that that was, like, done as kind of, like, a subversion of that, um, like, purpose. Well, I
0: mean, I think a lot of people would consider it to be an act of war if, for example, the U.S. sends an expeditionary force to occupy Iceland in the direct vicinity of belligerent German-controlled waters. I think a lot of people would consider it an act of war when the U.S., uh, when U.S. vessels are given orders to proactively launch attacks on German submarines, um, I think that is would be generally considered to be uh, warfare. And all that was done pursuant to land lease. And, you know, more importantly, rightly or wrongly, it convinced Hitler that the U.S. was already at war. Okay. All right. Well, all
6: right going back to what I was originally going to say was, you know, I, I think you were unfairly, people unfairly did jump to conclusions about things, about your, I guess, uh, intentions, or your deeper meaning of what you're, you know, when you made those, these observations. I think that, you know, I think one of the reasons is you're a political commentator, that's what you're known for, and you're also, you know, the, it was part of a, a wider thread about criticizing American foreign policy. So when you make that observation, people are going to comment on, you know, what you're tr- what you're trying to say, not as like a historian, you know, you're not on there as a historian normally. So people are going to want to know, okay, what do you mean by this? So because you are a commentator. Um, and then, you know, yeah, there was some debate on the historiography of it.
0: But hold on. But I mean, like, what is a commentator? I mean, yeah, okay, I'm a commentator, but... People are reacting not to the actual text that I've written. They're reacting to what they perceive to be, like, the broader implication of it, which they can do. But then don't claim I'm saying something I actually didn't claim. What I'm claiming is in the text. So, you know, I just think it's notable that there are all these mainstream stories, including just recently Adam Tooze, who's not – you know, who's one of the most mainstream, widely celebrated, popular and academic historians who went so much further than I did where I hedged and I uh, worded things with extra caution to attempt to not ascribe causality. Because, you know, correlation was sufficient for me to make the point that I was trying to make. But, I, you know, it's the the slightest bit of digging comes up with a substack that Adam Tooze wrote. Uh, you know, drawing on different historical works, where he is, he ascribes direct causality, not correlation, causality, to lend lease as a crucial factor which quote impelled not just military strategy but also the radicalization of the of Nazi Germany's racial policy. So that's an explicit assertion of causation on an order that I never made, and yet, of course, you'd never. Expect Adam Twos to be inundated with the kind of vitriol that I was, and if the reason for that is not substantive, it's just like impressionistic, based on what people think I'm implying. Um, then so be it. But it, I'm more interested in the substance. Yeah, yeah.
6: Um, I think that there. I brought, you know, I have a, I read Richard Evans. And I have one of his books, and I think I cited tweeted it out that they gave an explanation and it was related more to, like, Nazi propaganda. They did become more extreme. However, you know, I think one thing I was trying to bring up to you um, before was...
0: Well, why did they get more extreme?
6: Well, that's a good question. Why did they get more extreme? Well, why does
0: Evan say they got more extreme?
6: uh, In the passage I cite, it doesn't say anything about Intervention or ramping up of U.S. policy, um, I'm trying
0: to Well, in the passage I cited, because I read the same book, and, you know, by the way, Evans doesn't... Uh, Evans differs somewhat from uh, the thrust of the thesis that I laid out as per Gerlach. Actually, he and Gerlach seem to have a bit of a feud because uh, Gerlach accused Evans of just making something up about him uh, in stating that Gerlach... Had uh, distanced himself from his original 1998 claim about the uh, you know the decision to the final solution decision in in December to initiate the mass extermination phase of the treatment of uh, the European Jews. Um, Gerlach, uh, you know, years later in 2016 published a a new book where uh, he insisted that he had not distanced himself from that. Thesis, and in fact, had found additional substantiation for it, uh, including from a uh, a German uh, officer, like records of a German officer test, uh, attesting that uh, Hitler had made that order upon U.S. entry uh, to the war. So, you know, when I was citing Evans, I wasn't citing him for the purpose of that ultimate that part of the chronology, but I was I was citing Evans because Evans says that in June of forty one. One of the factors that gave rise to the intensification of the Nazi, uh, Nazi Germany's racial policy uh, towards Jews was the U.S. expanding lend-lease to the Soviet Union, which, of course, uh, Hitler had just launched a sneak attack upon. Um, so, you know, Evans says that as well.
6: Okay, well, let me, let me just assume that I, I don't question the evidence that you presented. I think there might, some people might bring up countervailing opinions, but I'm not, I'm not going to.
0: Which is fine. Other...
6: Yeah. I'm, so, I'm
0: fine with people yeah. bringing up countervailing opinion. I'm not saying this is the metaphys- yeah. metaphysically certain uh, factual reality. I'm saying that it's substanti- It's backed by ample mainstream uh, scholarship.
6: Okay. but well, when you, when you go and you use that and you use that observation of strict causality. I'm not saying that, you know, I, know, I understand you're not saying U.S. has, you know, is quote-unquote to blame or moral culpability, but straight up causality. If you're going to use that in a way that implies some type of broader commentary on how U.S. intervention can have unintended consequences, you, which I know you were focused more on the historiography at first, but I think you did eventually bring it back. To making some commentary in that direction, I think you have to contend with the counterfactual. Why did they ramp it up? Well, one possibility is that they were like, "Oh shit, uh, we're going to lose this war sooner than I thought." Um, U.S. was not just directly intervening after D-Day or after, you know after declaration of war, but yeah, they provided material support to the Soviet Union. What happens if they don't provide support? Well. Soviet Union could have surrendered. France, well, France was already occupied. They would have stayed occupied. I mean, what makes you think that Hitler would have, like, just taken it easy on the Jews if he had had a free hand?
0: Well, the, nothing, makes me, nothing makes me think that, which is why I'm not dealing in counterfactuals. I reject that I'm obligated no, to happy. deal in no, counterfactuals. I'm not dealing with any counterfactual reality no, 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 in my asking. assessment of any of this. I'm dealing with the actual reality. If people yeah. want to traffic yeah. in counterfactuals, that's their own choice. That's not incumbent no, okay. on me. I don't why think don't that's actually Michael, a useful why exercise. Don't wait,
1: why don't we wait until your piece comes out to discuss World War II further? You can clarify whether <laughs> you Because <know>, <laughs> well, it seems like yeah, we're like we're having like, it's the confusion on. The well, same I mean, I did I did again. post.
0: I mean, I did post um, decent chunks of it over the past couple of days. So I, I yeah, think but I mean, I think you could it, reference. Yeah. You know, I think it's easier but to reference an article.
6: The yeah. reason I, bring, I say that the counterfactual is relevant and is important is because it's like saying, "Oh, well, this can be to that." But that's like only one side of the coin. If you just if you focus on that, you're leaving out basically the, the, alter, the ultr- alternative. So if you don't, if you flip a coin and it's head, yeah. You can no, say, yeah.
1: Well, well, okay, well, I, I got it, Pierre. You know what? Well, and we'll,
0: we'll, 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 we'll end here because we don't want to get derailed. Pierre, do you have any non
1: World War I just
0: questions? wanted to, well, let me just say quickly Yeah. counterfactual history is speculative fiction. And I'm not really interested in speculative fiction, I'm interested in nonfiction. Okay, so that's my basic point. But, 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 so, okay,
1: okay. Okay.
0: All right. All right, thanks, thanks Pierre. Yeah. Let's go. Let's uh let's move on. <laughs> Iggy. I actually like Pierre because he, he uh he uh is one of the few people on the internet who would challenge me challenges me consistently but is not mm. like totally obnoxious and just okay. Prop, Props to
1: Pierre. Iggy Hey
7: gents, uh, how you doing? Good. Um, Yeah, so a couple of points I wanted to... Well, three, to be honest. Um, One is about what um, the escalation and the statement by Putin, where he's essentially um, warning that... um, He he, he sounds like he's essentially escalating the nuclear backstop um, uh, statements about essentially saying Russia has not deployed its most advanced weaponry. It has some... Uh, a weaponry that is more advanced than the West and essentially all weapons are on the table, right? Now, the way I look at that, and I'm curious about how you guys react to that statement, is that in a situation that they're in with a nuclear backstop, you have to... you You can possess nuclear weapons, but you have to credibly threaten to use them. So without credibly threatening to use every weapon in your arsenal to um, uh, repel an attack or uh, put put off the threat of an attack, deter one, uh, your nuclear backstop is irrelevant. Because the whole point is you don't want to be using the nuclear backstop. Therefore, you just threaten credibly that you will. And that is where Mutually Assured Destruction steps in. Now, I think that it is essentially to be expected and reasonable For any nation in Russia's equivalent position to make those statements, and in fact, the U.S. entire policy of uh, nuclear weapon use is is a strike first policy. And it always has been since it deployed them in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so I actually am curious about how you guys feel about and interpret what Putin said in this respect. Uh, Can you say that again? What what, what was exactly the question? Well, so Putin has said, and I'll just very quickly quote, Mm -hmm. um, they have even resorted to nuclear blackmail. I'm referring not only to the Western encouraged shelling of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which poses a threat of nuclear disaster, but also to the statements made by some high-ranking representatives of the leading NATO countries on the possibility and admissibility of using weapons of mass destruction. Yeah, yeah.
1: We saw the speech. Yeah, what's your your question about it?
7: So, I'm curious about how you interpret this statement from Putin in this respect about saying, we will certainly make use of all weapon systems available to us. This is not a bluff. Yeah. Personally, I believe that that is the normal expected rhetoric of anyone engaged in direct proxy war at east to west and therefore it doesn't necessarily mean that there is guaranteed escalation to a nuclear world war three scenario it's it's simply you have to expect these people to say this
1: Mm -hmm. well yes i know it's saying it's
7: guaranteed but yeah
1: that's that's right i mean i wrote a sub stack on this uh the other day and yeah it's not i mean it's not guaranteed but what's interesting here is the same speech where he's um, blessing the referendums that are going to be happening in the, within the next uh, days, um, he's he's talking like this about nuclear weapons. And the question is, you know, if the Russian hold on these areas is tenuous, in many cases they don't even, uh, you know, they don't even have most of the area. Which I guess maybe makes the case against nuclear escalation because they don't have it now anyway. So it's like if they lose, you know, another part of Donetsk, maybe it's just like you know we we, we already don't control all Donetsk. It's a long war. Uh, but, you know, the question is, you know, if you annex something and it's part of Russia and like, you know, there was an article in the Times about Izium and what was going on. I mean, the, the Ukrainians are now uh, uh, deciding whether to punish like the school teachers because the school, some school teachers were opening up schools. Uh, and They'd like gone to Russia to get trained on like the Russia curriculum, uh, even though they had Russia had not annexed Izium, They were like, you know, like integrating it into Russia, basically. <laughs> and... Um, and so, like you know, this was sort of becoming Russian territory already, and this is this is what they're you know what they're trying to do and so when that when that goes, um the question is you know what happens if you know it's the combination of annexation which is like crosses a red line right, which changes something, changes the politics of Russia and how they see these areas it's that plus the seemingly tenuous grip they have. Uh, on these regions, that that you know makes makes the uh, makes es- makes escalation into a live possibility.
0: Here's one way to think about why it ought to be seen as an escalation, even if the indication of nuclear reprisal or reprisal by other means uh, is what you'd expect in proxy warfare, uh, in which a nuclear-armed power is belligerent. Um, What is plainly going to be, quote, escalated is the amount of physical territory uh, about which it can, uh, in theory, be claimed is at existential risk. Because if Russia is now incorporating these provinces into Russia proper, And a, you know, a tenet of the nuclear use doctrine is that um, when Russia is facing existential threat, you know, that could uh, warrant use of nuclear weapons, Uh, then just the expansion or, quote unquote, escalation of the literal physical territory uh, about which that doctrine can apply um, seems to me just a straightforward. Escalation, uh, especially if that territory is under active warfare Does that make sense?
1: I've lost Iggy Um, Okay Okay. Let's go to the next person Uh, Jonathan
3: Hello? Yes, we hear you Hey yeah, I was going to say that, uh, you know, something to consider too, uh, Michael, is that, uh, I mean, yeah, there were, they did this because they were reacting to Germany's actions in Poland. But it, it was the French and the British who declared war on Hitler and then declared a blockade as well, which the Soviet Union then broke to supply Germany to help them fuel their effort to, you know, uh, basically uh, work out the the – uh, what was that pack called? The, Rib- the Ribbon yeah. uh, What's
0: what's what's the relevance of this in terms of what I was? saying?
3: Oh, I'm so, well, you're you're talking about the revision, like the revisionist history, and uh, my point. I want to say that the, that nobody really talks about the revisionism when it comes to say the UK and how they foment all these wars, including up till today. And it's, it's just constant. Yeah. Like the constant, the constant denominator is the UK is always fomenting wars, and they drag us involved in, into it too. So.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, one of the principal drivers behind the enactment, enactment of Lend-Lease was uh, Churchill. And he hoped, I mean, and it was contemporaneously recorded that it would draw the U.S. into the war. I mean, that's not even disputed. So, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, consistent with history that uh, the U.K. Uh, continues to be one of the, you know, the, the top leadership of the U.K., uh, from Johnson and now to Truss is more uh, extreme by at least a couple gradations, it seems, than um, the top leadership of the U.S. And the top leadership of the U.S., you know, Biden himself included, I think, is on this fairly extreme end, but they're outdone oh, yeah. consistently by the British.
3: Yeah.
1: Anyway, I agree with your point. I, I just want to add to that. Yeah. All right. Thanks, thanks, Kathy. Let's go to our buddy, Alvis.
2: I want to see if either of you, um, for your vast knowledge of World War II, have any insight as to why... I think people are interested in World how... War
0: II, Richard, unfortunately.
1: <laughs> okay, so I think we have uh, to okay. talk about I'm it. Okay.
2: guys have any insight into why eugenics became associated with the Nazis, even though Winston Churchill was a big fan of eugenics, um, mm-hmm. for instance, right, and was you know, saying that the bottom tens of the British population should be sterilized or whatever. So why do you guys think that eugenics has become... Um, so associated with the
0: Nazis well my um, theory on that is just because Nazi Germany instituted a mass extermination campaign on the basis of eugenics
2: But well, well, sorry, yeah but, but I don't but, think it was not really on the basis of eugenics it was the basis that all Jews were communists and therefore enemy combatants right like yeah like, like, like
0: well no it was due to I mean well yeah partially but it was also due to the uh, what was perceived as the inborn genetic dispositions of Jews right
1: yeah, I well, I mean, th- this wasn't just the Woods of Churchill. This was the Scandinavian countries, the U.S. Yeah, uh, too. I think. Well, I think it was. I don't think it was actually. It was because of Nazi Germany that the eugenics fell out of favor. I think there was basically a communist takeover of uh, of uh, elite, uh, you know, intellectual culture in the West. That's why a lot of people liked the later. Were communists all over the Roosevelt administration? Uh, communists were always blank blameless. Uh, Stalin uh, prosecuted geneticists. Um, and these people, like, you know, they didn't really take control of the American government, like the main, the, you know, the main political parties weren't run by communists, but, you know, people of communists are very, you know, left-wing le- uh, leanings, uh, dead be- did become an intellectual leader. at the time. They were sort of the, the cause of the U.S. Uh, position in World War II, more than this being a, I think, reaction to World War II. So it was convenient to blame that all on nazi germany but i don't think that that's what happened
2: okay okay so you think that the main reason for the, the fall of popularity eugenics in the early, early mid-20th century was essentially the rise of of communism and also um do you guys know why like the u.s and i um, sorry why the british and the french did not declare war in the soviet union when they invaded poland they promised to guarantee <laughs> poland security poland got invaded by two countries why did they only declare war in one well
1: uh, uh, the um yeah. will you take that, Michael. Why did, why did they uh... – Wait, wait,
0: wait, wait. Say it again. <laughs> Say it again. Why is that
2: so, – you know, I mean, In France, in, it's the late 30s, Britain and France um, declared – Right. They the both United declare war on Germany, Germany rather than the Soviet Union. Yeah. And, and the British and French only declared war on one of those countries. Why did they also – Well, there was a month – there the was treaty. a delay
1: after the uh, – uh the germans were the first ones but right. it was and the and the soviets used the germans as an excuse but this was a uh, it was this was in McMeekin's book it's not just about poland it's about you know how indifferent you know they saw germany as the enemy you know uh france and the uk and they looked the other way i mean the, the baltic countries and everything else that uh uh stalin was doing Um, so yeah they were they they saw Germany as as the enemy not for you know because they wanted to stop the holocaust or whatever but because it was just the British policy not to let Germany dominate the continent and France had all its rivalry with Germany going back for a long time and again communists were in positions of power and influence Uh, I don't know about France and yes definitely the UK too Um, and the US Uh, so yeah there was you know there was a lot of reasons why
2: Okay, so so it's interesting that the, the opposition to eugenics um, basically comes from communism. Or right? I, I would like to see. I mean, well, what's
0: of, the answer always on why France didn't declare war on the Soviet Union, as as far as you're concerned?
2: I mean, my guess, my guess, which I don't know because I'm not that well read on this. My guess is that um, you know, Germany invaded first and. Um, the British and French figured that it was either to be run by the
1: Nazis or the Soviets. No, but the, but you to say the context. The entire the entire guarantee to Poland wasn't just like an abstract guarantee. It was like in the context of Germany and Czechoslovakia right. and Germany threatening Poland. So it was like, okay, okay. we defended you against. Yeah, Poland, it was like, Poland, it was
0: like the prog, it was like the the endpoint of a longer term alliance. You know, commingled alliance structure um, that the Soviet. Incursion didn't play into it in the same way.
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Anything else, uh, Mr. Allis?
0: I mean, I'm probably. I know I'm missing something. I'm missing something because I admit I don't have a. Uh, I mean, I need to. I need to read that McEachin book
2: clearly. So, do so, so you, you think that um, the opposition to eugenics, you know, today's you know benevolent eugenics, polygenic and we'll select uh, do you think the opposition to all of that can basically be traced
1: back to communism? I, I wouldn't I mean I'm too too literal to say communism, but yeah, very I mean blank slatist ideology of like even denying genetics exists, like that had triumphed in the US uh, I think by the time of basically uh, by the time of the Roosevelt administration. Uh, no, so okay. that was there. And, and so you get opposition to eugenics. you once you get blank slatism I mean obviously. Um, okay. And blank slavism
2: started here. Okay. But yeah, you are right, the early twentieth century everyone was to eugenics. The Scandinavians, the British, the Americans, the Zionist movement, and so on, and you know everyone was supporting it, and then all of a sudden, like, it fell out of favor. And people
1: yeah. Well, you should you should write a you should write a you should write an essay essay about it because it is interesting how this idea came. in. Uh, I can't write the essay under my real name though. Well, write it under uh, John von Neumann. People say John von Neumann is really smart. There must be there must be something here. Uh, all right. Anything else, all this? All right. Uh,
0: let's
2: go to uh, Walnut. Uh, no.
1: Hi walnut. You should bring up walnut. <laughs> he's my friend alright man we'll talk we'll see you later you guys should have a play date okay Jack oh Jack
0: Jack unmute if you can Jack going once Jack going twice
8: Jack. How's that? there he is.
0: Yeah, we can hear you. Yeah, sorry about that. Sorry, I didn't mean that. Uh, I had you on
8: mute. Um, sorry, can you hear me now? Yep. Uh, yeah, it just, first of all, what, uh, it sounds like you're in a wind, wind tunnel. Better? Yeah, it doesn't sound. Can you, you it, Jack, sound? are you
0: on a hot air balloon right now?
8: No, no, I'm just using a speakerphone. I don't know what's wrong with my earphone. How's that? Better? All right, you're good. Yeah, you're good, you're good, now. you're good now. You're good. Yeah. Um, first of all, well done for discussing nuclear endgame. Um, I think it's at least good that a couple of people are discussing a potential end of the world rather than no one at all. Um, so that's great. Second thing is the endgame itself um, is now being announced by um, Putin, which is this annexation. Which, as I look at it, is his, is his Article Five. I mean, I'm going to put this as a proposition to you, and then see if you think it makes sense. He's created a nuclear tripwire, right, which um, will automatically generate uh, a nuclear response. Does that make sense?
1: It's, yeah, the most frightening theory of what's going on here. I, I agree that that's you know plausible at least.
0: Yeah, I mean, I agree that's a plausible uh, analogy, uh, you know, but the maybe what makes it potentially even more dangerous is, you know, as ambiguous or has open to interpretation the NATO version of that tripwire is. At least, you know, it's um, like a cumulative thing, meaning that there are multiple brokers involved who... At least we have to come to some kind of consensus, even if we, it's being driven overwhelmingly up by the US. And, um, yeah, but it is in, you know, in the charter, and then can be evaluated on that basis. But for Putin, it's just a matter of speculation and interpretation as to what the actual you know, contours of that tripwire uh, policy are.
8: Um, I'm not sure what the procedure is for declaring nuclear war for NATO, um, and I don't think anyone's made it clear. But um, it seems that if you feel you've been invaded, and they, uh classic example is a radioactive cloud floating across you, if, if you declare that as an attack, then there's a meeting of NATO council, and then they decide uh, what to do. And that's all I know about it. I don't know if anyone, if you guys know what the answer is.
0: Um, well, yeah, I mean, a special uh, session of, uh, Na- I mean, It's sort of ambiguous, but what happened after 9-11 is a special session, emergency session of uh, NATO was called, and uh, member states unanimously agreed to uh, invoke Article 5 on behalf of the U.S., which uh, authorized authorized the mission in uh, Afghanistan as a uh, NATO mission as per the collective defense um you know obligations that were perceived to be uh, in the treaty. But you know it, it seems it's pretty it's pretty ad hoc ultimately. It's not like a binding procedure. It could be uh it's more or less made up on the fly.
8: Well what if Orban says no
0: then they couldn't invoke Article five? <laughs> I think so I, I think.
8: It has to be um,
0: yeah. Yeah then they couldn't invoke Article five. Um, you know, but 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 you know the but it doesn't that doesn't preclude individual member states from ma- making that determination autonomously or even uh, within blocks, right? So that's like the ambiguity of this NATO structure. Um, uh, you know, if you know, Hungary vetoing something or declining to sign on to a resolution or something, that doesn't prevent anybody else from doing something.
8: So, in other words, that the United States or Britain could act unilaterally?
1: Yeah. Yes, they can.
8: Really? I mean, that's declaring war then, which means it needs congressional approval.
0: You're confused as to whether the U.S. can act unilaterally? I think
1: they've demonstrated
8: <laughs> that pretty clearly over the years. Okay. Well, but how? Does they need a
1: congressional vote? to? No, it doesn't. The, the, no, they, no. the last time the U.S. had a congressional vote on war was really, I think, World War II. Well, um, on a formal declaration. Yeah, exactly.
0: So the US, yeah, okay, the US goes. So
2: and when and when they have
0: when when they have votes authorizing stuff like when Bush assented to a authorization for use of military force for Iraq in 2002, that was really only at his pleasure. That's so uh, functionally just optional on the part of the chief executive. The president has basically, I mean, unilateral powers to do whatever he wants and even the war powers resolution You know, which was put into place as a reaction to the um, Nixon's uh, invasion of Cambodia. Even that is more or less toothless. Um, So yeah, then the president has free reign, uh, unfortunately, to do as he pleases. By the way, largely as a result of the infrastructure that was built up around World War II, when uh, Roosevelt proclaimed an unlimited national emergency in May of forty-one. And was able to seize control of industry and basically endow himself with unilateral, limitless powers.
8: Right. So, what I'm trying to get at is, uh, obviously, I'd like to short circuit this process to nuclear war, and I'm trying to figure out a way of. Yeah, you know, I'm just this guy. I'm no one special, but I'm like you, I guess. <laughs> you know, we're just trying to figure out a way of stopping the mechanical march to nuclear war, and well, one way is. Is there any way of putting sand in the gears of NATO's military response? Because I think the Russians will use tactical nuclear weapons. That's my... Well, OK, I'll go back to the tripwire There's Three things you can do with the tripwire, right? Firstly, you can stop the tripper, which is the AFU. And I don't think that's stop, stoppable at the moment. It's on a roll. And I think that the Russians are going to get rolled up in southern Ukraine and possibly eastern Ukraine. So the trip is not going to stop. The other end of the wire there's an explosive that's Putin and he's declared just now in the speech it's not a bluff He's going to use nuclear weapons. So you've got the tripper and the explosive ready to go. The wire is the um, annexation clause, you know, whether or not this is treated as a cause, uh, well there's actually two parts of it. The annexation, whether or not that's treated as a cause of spell for tactics by Putin and The other side of that is what the US response is to that wire, right? So we don't know. Well, I think the the incursion over the annexation will be the trip, in which case the only thing we can affect is the US response, which is what we're talking about now.
0: Well, I was just going to say, I was just going to say, to whatever extent I have an influence, it's a very small, marginal. Uh, basically negligible influence, but to whatever extent that influence exists, at least for me, it seems like it's best directed at the U.S. policymaking apparatus and uh, at least trying to bring some clarity of thought to the nature of this escalatory uh, spiral and the role that U.S. policy slash you know, media consensus has played in, in um, accelerating that spiral. Well, of course,
8: we both have you know, the narrative and the blob, are both on a warmongering algorithmic state at the moment. Just they, their they, you know, success, flush with success, and they're loving it. Right, so that's there's not much hope there. I'm, I'm running out of options to think how the process could stop. It feels strange, it to me, like it's almost inevitable. Well, yeah, you
0: know, what, another like, perverse thing that you know, a, a perverse factor here, perverse in the sense that it accelerates the escalatory spiral rather than d de- Accelerate it is that the success of the counteroffensive uh, this month in taking back territory uh, emboldened the you know the blob side of things uh, to kind of double down on their uh, highest stake goals and so yesterday I mean yesterday I put, yesterday I put out I, uh, you know I, I uh, posted a screenshot. Of a column that uh, Anne Applebaum published in the Atlantic, and you can't get much more representative or emblematic of sort of mainstream foreign policy consensus thinking than her at this point, especially with the Democratic administration in power. Uh, and she said that we you know we, given the success of this counterfactual, I mean, this I think was published uh, a week or two ago. She says, given the success of the Ukraine uh, counter is, what we have to think of Ukraine victory in terms of, or what we, t- we have, what we have to think Ukraine victory means, is the, quote, end of the Putin regime. So she's saying victory for Ukraine means regime change, and that's the, ultimately, that's the ultimate existential outcome that you would think would precipitate some kind of nuclear use, right? An existential threat to the regime, and that's what they're saying they want.
8: Exactly, and, well, that's the Mearsheimer thesis. Also, not only regime change, but very important, the other ass- end of that regime change is what they call state collapse or uh, decolonization, which is the end of the uh, Russian Federation, mm. which well, they right. clearly wrecked right. with their, their um, sort of uh, sproiking colour revolutions and break breakaways and uh, separate, well, you know, various forms of, you know,
1: undermining the you. Russian generation. Right. We got you. you. Know. We got you, Jack. All right, okay. thanks, Jack. Yeah, yeah let's uh.
2: Move
8: one, one final point. Though.
1: Sorry, Jack. Uh, Jack, uh, your
0: your your connection is not great, but uh, thanks for the contribution. Um,
8: sorry. Uh, Walnut, you're up. Hello.
1: Yes. Hello. Walnut.
9: Sorry, I'm not sure if I missed you guys the first time. Uh, this app is sometimes a bit buggy for me. Uh, can you guys hear me? Yeah, yeah you're on. Um, So there's a second order effect, which is a nuclear consideration I was going to float for you guys. And I would really like your input on this because no one seems to be discussing this. What happens if Russia decides they're going to issue Iran a freaking um, safety guarantee or something? (laughs) And that in turn, because, okay, so right now, you know, Israel is helping Ukraine out with a lot of military technology. There appear to be at least more than a few Israeli or ex-Israeli commanders or basically some of the smartest human capital in this field helping ukraine out for a host of reasons we can understand Not sanctioning so russia as if...
1: why would you ukraine why would anyone do
9: that no that no, you know iran
1: i don't, that's i just don't think that's that's realistic iran is also you know as a you know globally isolated country it needs you know russia has friends with saudi arabia it's friends with the it has good relations with these oil producing states they're not going to like that a lot
9: that's what i was thinking uh,
1: uh, so yeah, I don't think we have to worry about that that possibility. Actually, to me, to me, it's
0: it's funny. Israel is interesting for a you know, like a different reason in this scenario, which is that if there was any nation state you'd think would be susceptible to U.S. entreaties to follow its lead on a major geopolitical issue, uh, it's Israel, um, and yet uh, Israel is among the countries that has declined to uh, impose sanctions on Russia. Now, I know it had its own reasons around Syria and such, but, but even so, it's pretty technology. interesting.
9: They're still providing... Technology. Are We're they? I mean, is
0: that, how extensive yeah. is that link? I'm, not, I'm actually not, not sure. Um,
9: I'm not sure how much it is. It's hard to quantify. But Israel is like, again, okay, human capital is beats natural resources any day, and they have access to insane technology, which and Ukraine is getting at least some of it. And I don't know how that lays into the Russia dynamic, because it's... You know, you're not wrong, uh, Richard, in that that's what I was thinking, right? The main reason why they would not want to defend Iran is it jeopardizes their friendship with MBS and everyone well, in Well, they don't want to fight to uh, defend
1: Iran because it's a burden that, you know, it doesn't get them anything. But the question it, then it is, doesn't...
9: you know, um, how do I put it? It's, it's, there are two relationships at play, right? There's one of the uh, Iran and Syria. And there's also simultaneously whatever is happening between Prigs and the Jeeks. Um, that's again, like a Iraq, sorry, Iran and Turkey proxy war happening over there. And in a weird way, now that Iran is supplying the Russians, you have, you know, Turkey versus Iran happening via Ukraine versus Russia, because those are the two teams supporting, you know, using the drone supplied by these two countries. So it, this is, it's not exactly a world war situation, but there, it's a very multifaceted scenario. And no one is, uh, it, at least, to my knowledge, interested in exploring the Central Asian angle
3: at all. Yeah, yeah
9: you know, I don't know about a, I don't
0: know about a nuclear guarantee being sent to Iran, but that doesn't discount the sort of wider issue of what seemed to be uh, like the emergence of these newly these newly sort of entrenched or uh, entrenching uh, blocks of countries with sort of differing commitments and entanglements um, that are. Uh, being marshaled against other blocs, which you know, history seems to indicate is a uh, recipe for that recipe for confrontation. Yeah, yeah.
9: Okay, that's one thing, and the second thing I wanted to ask you guys is opinion on, and this is the interesting thing is, um, so Russia has already down human capital, and the demographic trends are pretty messed up. Uh, the question then would be, how exactly are they filtering for Ukrainian demographics? Because from what I understand about Ukraine right now is the women can leave the rich men basically could pay a fine and leave the country like a bail bond. So are both Russia and Ukraine essentially pursuing dysgenic migratory policies unintentionally?
1: I think that's happening in every country where there's why, where people can get out of. So
9: every poor country
1: uh, is seeing people leave. Um, Who are...
9: I see. Okay, I'm going like, to actually try to do some research on this. But do you know, uh, either of you guys know anyone who's trying to understand the multiple levers at play at once? Because there's Syria, there's Afghanistan, sorry, Azerbaijan, Armenia, there's Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and there's Russia, Ukraine, and all of it is basically, you know, da- governed by one or two coupled equations, essentially.
0: I'm not sure I trust anyone who claims that they can synergize all that into one sort of unified theory. But if I think of anybody, I'll let you know.
1: Mm-hmm. thanks okay thank you Walnut. And, all not
0: right, well, uh, uh, let's go to uh so phil was the last caller because I okay else yeah these up guys
1: up, yeah. yeah okay uh, sorry guys everyone else okay phil go ahead oh.
5: am i uh am i clear yep you're oh no oh, mm-hmm. very good um, yeah i was gonna respond to the escalatory thing i mean which is extraordinary and, and all kind of you know we 're extracting from a narrative you know even up until this last thing i mean i 've had this conversation a little bit with you before, but i I mean in my opinion, and I think the opinion of some a variety of military folks they cannot do what the u s or some of the supporters of uh, of uh, uh, Of this war, you're saying, you know, you're going to kick them out. You're going to win this militarily. That's just absurd. It's just absurd. I think the red line is likely, uh, you know, coming off of his statement uh, the other day. I mean, he's clearly doing two things. I, in my opinion, one is for internal uh, consumption, which is the whole emotional issue of uh, the, you know, the the Russian uh, folks. That have uh, you know kind of been suffering since twenty fourteen, et cetera, right? So you have an internal angle. I think the real red line is uh, 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 Crimea. I, I think that is an essential uh, existential threat that they understand. And
0: uh, well, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, that, I've been, t- I mean, to uh, be- just to interject really quickly, but you know, Richard, and I have talked to this off and on for months now, but. You know, uh, I think it was in August when their first was launched these attacks on uh, crimean on Russian installations in Crimea that seemed to be of unclear providence, but Ukraine kind of alluded to them being responsible, but you know were sort of um, cute about it. Uh, I said, "Hey, I mean, how is this not?" The basic definition of an escalation, of an escalation, given it that it's the that it's the broadening of the geographic range of the conflict, and it's a direct attack on what Russia regards to be its sovereign territory, rightly or wrongly. And of course, you get laughed off and snickered at that the definition of escalation would uh, apply there. But you know, then sure enough, in the speech this week, uh, uh, Putin uh, cites. Crimea in exactly those terms, but then of course well, look, it's exactly if you mention it, it means that you're just parroting Putin because no, you it, can't,
5: it, you it, can't objectively serious, analyze right? anything it, it, it's the obvious one it's access I mean it's a military threat he's going to allow other people into the Black Sea i mean <laughs> it, 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 it's crazy and if you if you kind of look at the whole history of uh, uh, of that region, you see how that's been the bone of contention uh or or the issue you know uh the, the a security issue, certainly for anybody that's in that area. But it, I, I think you're right. Those were those little provocations. I, I think it all adds up. I mean, the little assaults, you know, that are not militarily significant across the border. I guess that's Belgrade or whatever it is up there. Uh, that little and, and the little shots at the uh, at the nuclear plant, you know, which nobody seemed to acknowledge that the Ukrainians kept shelling. <laughs> Which, you know, but they're they're kind of you know little provocatory things. Now it makes sense, I think, from the Ukrainian point of view, because their hope is to provoke something. And the frightening part, I think, in in terms of uh, uh, of this escalating horribly, is that when it becomes clear that they don't have a military shot, then I would expect. Well, desperation begins to set in, <laughs> and then I'd worry about that kind of
0: uh, yeah. To... You know, Phil. I mean, just a
5: yes, just, just a
0: that's... just a closing thought, and then uh, we should we should end here because it's uh, you know we're coming toward the end. But one thing that's so maddening to me maddening to me about the inability to rationally discuss this whole escalation topic is mm-hmm. that there's a chronic ability for people to comprehend the is ought distinction which i thought was foundational to like epistemology and ethics and other fields of just rational inquiry but you know it can be the case that a that ukraine can perceive an escalation that they undertake to be justified and yet it could still fit the criteria for an escalation, right? I mean, you could say an escalation (laughs) is worth doing, but they don't recognize any kind of differentiation between prescriptive and descriptive claims. And so that just sort of muddles the whole discourse beyond,
1: you know, uh, beyond comprehension. I
5: think
1: you're right. (laughs) Yeah, there's, uh, this is a... This is kind of, uh, yeah, the is odd, that's a good point. I mean, there is odd distinction that goes out the door in, in wartime. Oh, you know, you think things are going to be bad for Ukraine or it's going to go into a bad situation or, well, you know, the NATO expansion is reckless and it's going to have a bad effect. Okay, you're, you're, uh, you're, uh, it shouldn't be like that. You know, we want, we want these, you know, we want the morally upstanding position to be the thing that leads to the best outcome. So therefore, you know, you're a bad person if you say that. The same thing with the, uh, with the Holocaust thing. So it's, uh, yeah, this is, yeah, this is this is a recurring problem in foreign affairs, especially. My,
0: my senior thesis, my senior philosophy thesis, was on David Hume. So I'm stubbornly committed to the is-ought distinction. Yeah, you're a philosophy <laughs> major. Uh, I was I was a double major in uh, philosophy and uh, political science.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The philosophy Philosophy major is one of the smartest majors there is, if not the smartest.
0: Yeah, yeah. I wish uh, I started off with uh, political science and um, wished I had done philosophy instead pretty quickly after taking a bunch of philosophy classes. So just, you know, had a double major.
5: Well, I don't know what it's like, but strangely enough, I am a philosophy major. And it was uh, it was all Marx and Rawls when I was there. (laughs)
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> for me, it was uh, the. For me, it was Hume and Kant, but um, that was just my little angle. That
5: yeah. Sounds like a serious program. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> thank, you,
1: right. thank you, thank go. you, Phil. All and, right, thanks um, everybody. Thanks everybody, and uh, yeah, well, well, I guess we'll see you guys next week when Russia has annexed four new. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. four <laughs> or four maybe new we, new we won't. Maybe we'll be, uh, Yeah, we'll do
0: our next call-in from the smoldering ruins.
1: Yeah. All right, everyone. Have a All day. right, uh,
0: Richard, you got to uh, you got to close this out and then uh, publish it. Got it. Bye, everyone. All right, bye.